Suddenly, Edward Oxford stepped forward, pulled out one pistol from his coat, fired a shot in the commotion that followed, fired another shot. He definitely wanted to be famous. He wanted to make his name, and the best way he could see of doing that was to attach it to the name of the Queen. So it was possible to just move countries, take a new name, tell some lies and get away with it. I'm Jen Kelly from The Herald Sun. Welcome to In Black and White. This podcast is another in a series sharing the untold stories of some of Melbourne's forgotten characters. In Melbourne in the 1880s, a man known to all as John Freeman lived a very ordinary life. He was a house painter, a church warden, a newspaper writer, a family man. In short, John Freeman lived a life of mundane respectability. But unbeknown to everyone who knew him in Melbourne, including his wife and two stepchildren, John Freeman harboured a terrible secret that he took to the grave. Forty years earlier, on the other side of the world, a man then known as Edward Oxford had shot at Queen Victoria. It was the first of seven separate attempts on her life. A court found Edward Oxford not guilty on the grounds of insanity and he was locked up for 27 years in criminal asylums. He was expelled from England and adopted a new name and new life in Melbourne where the violent youth somehow evolved into a dignified gentleman and published writer. His secret double life has only recently come to light. Melbourne author Jenny Sinclair investigated the extraordinary story for a book published in 2012 called A Walking Shadow, The Remarkable Double Life of Edward Oxford. The story begins in the summer of 1840 when the young Queen Victoria, aged just 21, newly married and pregnant, was out for a carriage ride with her husband, Prince Albert, through the park around Buckingham Palace. While Queen Victoria was not universally loved, Jenny Sinclair says there was no reason to expect anyone would attempt to assassinate her, least of all an 18-year-old Birmingham boy named Edward Oxford. You've got the gates of Buckingham Palace open, there's crowds along the sides of the road in Green Park, which is along the um, wall of Buckingham Palace. So you have a wall on one side, the park on the other, crowds of people basically there on a beautiful summer afternoon, it was the 10th of June, to wave at the Queen and her husband and just generally doing that thing you do when a Queen passes by. And suddenly Edward Oxford stepped forward, pulled out one pistol from his coat, fired a shot in the commotion that followed, fired another shot. Prince Albert pulled Queen Victoria down to get her out of the way. Uh, People grabbed anyone that was nearby. I think Oxford dropped the guns because somebody else picked one up and he took some time to clear his name. He was taken back to the police station. Oxford actually stepped forward and said words to the effect of, it was me, I did it. And he was then grabbed by everybody around him. Um, Eventually, a couple of police turned up and he was hustled back to a police station. Queen Victoria continued on her ride, went off to visit the relative she was going to visit. Now, I guess the big question is, why would Edward Oxford attempt such a thing? And I think we have to look into his background to understand that. Yeah, he was... 
he was a very he had a bad childhood. His father was violent. Um, he just lost his job as a what you call a pop boy, which is basically a, a barfly worker in a pub not far from um, not far from Buckingham Palace. In fact, London was very small in those days. His mother was out of town. He'd always been in what they called an odd child. There'd been a lot of screaming, carrying on, laughing at strange things. His behaviour was definitely. Very disturbed up until this point. Interestingly, the date of the shooting was the date of his father's death, an anniversary of his father's death. But he was also after notoriety. He definitely wanted to be famous. He wanted to make his name and the best way he could see of doing that was to attach it to the name of the Queen. And he always had a bit of an obsession with guns, didn't he? Uh, Yeah, he'd been attending shooting ranges, um, shooting out of the back window of his flat, basically, for some time earlier. He definitely felt that the guns, I think, gave him a a bit of extra power and um, cachet in life. He wanted to show his guns off to people, that kind of thing. And he also created a society. So what was this called? Young England, is that right? Uh, Young England. So Young England was a fairly complex secret society with... A whole range of titles, special clothes you had to wear, ribbons, feathers, that kind of thing, secret codes for getting in the door, letters sent to and fro from the members, and references to conspiracy with overseas figures, and it was all completely in Edward Oxford's mind. So there were no other members of this secret group? Uh, not that we can establish, and there's never been any proof that there was. Edward Oxford was kept in custody for several weeks after the shooting and he was left in no doubt about the gruesome punishment he might face if found guilty of trying to assassinate the Queen. At one point there were some hangings pretty much directly outside the prison he was being held so he was under no illusions as to to what might be in store for him but it went to trial within about six to eight weeks. And so normally you would expect that the punishment for attempting to assassinate the Queen at that time would to be executed and probably to be hung. Uh, Yeah, for high treason, it's being hung, drawn and quartered. I can't quite remember whether your insides are pulled out first or second, but it's along those lines. It's extremely unpleasant punishment. So there was a lot of sympathy for him, though, too. He was an 18-year-old boy. His mother was completely distraught, and the newspapers made a lot of that. There was definitely a feeling that maybe actually executing him wasn't the way to go. At the trial, which went into his um, family life in great detail, he was eventually found not guilty by reason of insanity. But that wasn't such a great thing for him because that meant that he wasn't sentenced to a a set period of time. He was sent to the Bethlehem Royal um, Hospital, which was an insane asylum, and was there indefinitely at Her Majesty's pleasure. So it was really up to Queen Victoria whether he would ever leave or not. Bethlehem was improving. It no longer allowed visitors to come and gawp at the mentally ill for payment. That had happened not very long before. People were still being kept in chains in some circumstances. They were still being made to sleep on piles of hay. There was a movement more widely, I guess, for better treatment of mentally ill people. It took longer to reach Bethlehem for various reasons. So he was kept with some very violent, unmedicated, mentally ill people and was probably not mentally ill himself at any point during this the period he spent there, which was 25 years. There's no reason to think he ever was insane. No. it's One of the arguments at the trial was that the fact that he shot at Queen Victoria in broad daylight proved he was insane because it's a crazy thing to do. So he may have had some sort of episode. Um, certainly there was a family history of fairly unhinged behaviour, but there was no evidence certainly 
after the trial that he ever did anything out of the ordinary in terms of his mental health and his behaviour. He was a very well-behaved inmate. One big question that will never be answered with certainty is whether Edward Oxford intended to kill Queen Victoria because no used bullets were ever found at the scene. I've researched what one of these guns does when it goes off and whether there are bullets or not. There's a huge bang and a massive explosion of powder and smoke and it's all very dramatic. Um, Whether Oxford had bullets in the gun, he would never say definitively. He made cryptic comments about whether there were or whether there weren't. The police combed the area very carefully, looked in every crevice of the walls of Buckingham Palace. They couldn't find any bullets, but at the same time, a large number of the general public had been over the area as well. So they could easily have picked up bullets and taken them away. The only bullet that was found didn't fit the gun. So there was no proof and he never really said whether uh, whether there were bullets in the gun. In all, Edward Oxford spent 27 years in Bethlehem and Broadmoor lunatic asylums. It was while locked up alongside some of England's most infamous criminals that he began to reform himself into a better man. When he found himself in the asylum, it would have been the most massive wake-up call. By the time he'd spent seven to eight years there, he'd learned three or four languages, he'd learned to knit, he'd become a master of painting, not um, artistic painting, but really practical stuff like the marbling you see on old Victorian fireplaces and just painting walls. He was extremely helpful to the staff there and he was considered the best and most sane inmate of anyone that was in um, Bethlehem. Now, the expectation was that he was going to be locked up for the rest of his life. So why didn't that happen? Why did he end up in Melbourne? I think he made friends in Bethlehem. Um, A couple of people in particular became not necessarily fond of him but definitely convinced that he wasn't insane and that it was wrong to keep him in there so long. He'd been 18 when he committed the crime. When he was moved to Broadmoor, there was a bit of a move to say, can't we let this one out? That was rejected for political reasons. And a couple of years later, they tried again and pretty much everyone senior from a mental health point of view who had anything to do with him wrote letters in support and I think eventually the Queen just relented. He was in his 40s by then and he promised to leave the country forever. There was definitely a condition that he would leave England and never come back and never, definitely never go near Queen Victoria again. And why Melbourne of all places? Melbourne, well, Melbourne was a good place to send people who were not wanted in England. There was a lot of that going on. But why Melbourne in particular was probably because of a man who was his keeper in Bethlehem, who was quite a senior figure there, who was out here in the 18, late 1830s, who travelled with the one of the protectors of Aborigines. So he was very much an early, an early colonist of Melbourne who'd gone back and was working at Bethlehem. This person, um, Hayden, used to give talks to the inmates and was an advocate for immigration to Australia. So I expect he put the idea in Oxford's head. Okay. And he actually paid for the fare as well for Oxford to come out as under a completely different identity. Yeah. Hayden paid for the newly made John Freeman to come out. That money may have been donated by other friends of of, um, Oxford slash Freeman. So he changed his name and left the whole first half of his life behind. John Freeman arrived in Melbourne in 1868 with only a few pounds to his name. Marvellous Melbourne was booming on the back of the gold rush. Jobs were plentiful. Magnificent buildings were rising fast. Industry was strong. John Freeman began in earnest the job of reinventing himself as a man of honour. He found a job as a house painter and became a church warden for the city's main Anglican cathedral. St James Cathedral, which still stands in its new location down near the Flagstaff Gardens, was Melbourne's first Anglican cathedral. So when you think that Melbourne was an Anglican town, the Queen was the head of the Church of England, the Anglican cathedral, even though it's quite small and modest now, 
was a very important institution. Um, the head of the Anglican Cathedral was basically the head of the religious life in Melbourne. And through a series of connections, Oxford became an important member of the congregation and pretty much helped run the the lay side of the church, looking after the buildings, looking after the finances, that kind of thing. And can you tell us about his involvement with the West Melbourne Mutual Improvement Society? The West Melbourne Mutual Improvement Society was pretty much hilarious from our point of view because it was a group of guys, I think occasionally women, who would get together regularly to give each other lectures on how to be better people. This was before the internet, so I guess that's how they got information around. It did have a bit of a religious kind of a thesis to it. The idea was that you could become a better person by reading great books and discussing issues. So Oxford attended lectures on things like humbug and how to love your mother and other things on wider questions of the empire, of um, you know, what was going on in different colonies. And this was just a group of people who would get together and try to be better, but that was what Oxford life was all about at that point, I guess. And he went on to marry? Yes, he married a woman who'd been widowed twice. They both lied about their ages at the wedding. She lied a little bit less than he did. She had two kids already. Uh, She was a seamstress who lived in South Melbourne. And as far as I know, for at least the first eight years of their, their life together, he didn't tell her anything about the life back in England. Do we think that after that he did tell her something? I've got no reason to think so. The only clue I've got that he told her anything like the truth is that the date on his um, death certificate and headstone are correct, whereas at his marriage he cut a couple of years off his age. But there was nothing to indicate that she knew any of this. And because of the insanity uh, verdict, he may that may have been as important as the shooting at Queen Victoria thing because insanity was thought of very differently in those days and it was a bit of a stain on your character that he might not have wanted her to either know about or have to bear in her life. Is there any suggestion that anyone in Melbourne knew about his double life? No, maybe a friend or two of Hayden. He does mention in a letter to Hayden having run into a mutual friend of theirs who obviously knew who he was, but they didn't have fingerprints and very few photographs in those days. So it was possible to just move countries, take a new name, tell some lies and get away with it. Despite his own violent and troubled childhood, it appears John Freeman became a model husband to his wife, Jane, and a devoted family man. There was a six-year-old and there was a a teenage daughter who was brought over from Western Australia once they married, who was um, quite important in his life until she died a few years later. So he was a good father as far as we know. I believe he was. I did have some contact with a descendant of those children who said there were a few stories about him, but basically... Grandpa's stories, no stories about what he'd done. They were gobsmacked to find out the truth about him. John Freeman also became a newspaper writer, contributing stories to the Argus. For this, he chose a most fitting pseudonym. Just as he chose the name Freeman to suit his new life, he wrote under the name Lieber, Latin for free. He liked to go out on the streets of Melbourne, write down what he observed and sell the stories to the newspapers. He did a bit of gonzo. He'd do things like go and stay in a boarding house for the night and then write what he'd seen there. So he wrote maybe 10 of these articles, sold them to newspapers like the Argus, and there was a big market for books about Melbourne back in England. So he wrote a quite dramatic book about Melbourne called Lights and Shadows of Melbourne Life, which goes into the really seedy side of marvellous Melbourne and what was going on in the back lanes, um, made a big thing of, I guess, the drug trade and the gambling. It also talked about 
the rich people and the scene on Collins Street. It's quite a valuable historical resource um, for people who are writing about marvellous Melbourne because he does go into detail about very small things like a particular pie cellar on a particular street. The other question, though, is, of course, he was a complete liar. So whether we can believe anything in the book is another question. What about his his latter days? His uh, did he grow old? Did he die in Melbourne? Yeah, he died in Melbourne at seventy eight, maybe about a year before Queen Victoria died. He was involved with the church up to his very old age. His wife outlived him, so he had, from all appearances, a pretty happy marriage. So it was a pretty sedate and peaceful ending to what had started off as an incredibly dramatic life. John Freeman died at the age of seventy eight in the year nineteen hundred, the year before Queen Victoria died. He is buried in the Church of England area of Melbourne General Cemetery alongside two of his wife's family members. As the cemetery's historian Celestina Sagazio told us, John Freeman's forlorn grave offers no hint of his remarkable double life. The grave has a broken headstone with a cross section lying on the ground. The rusty iron railing is blocking in sections. The faded lettering is now difficult to read. Freeman was the last person to be buried in the grave. His inscription simply reads, John Friedman died April 23rd, 1900, aged 78 years. There is no hint of his notorious English life and redemptive journey in Melbourne. Dr Sagazio describes the story of John Freeman's transformation as a heartening tale of redemption. He came from a very poor background, uh, his father was violent, an alcoholic, and uh, his life was full of despair. And I think, you know, the opinion is that he developed illusions of grandeur and he wanted to escape. And he thought, you know, the best way to do this was to uh, try to assassinate the Queen. I think it was a cry for help. And and I think he just reformed himself, um, himself so much in the 27 years he spent in a lunatic asylum and a mental hospital. And, uh, and he chose Melbourne and all the places, you know, in the British Empire to come out because at that time, Melbourne was starting to excite a lot of attention around the world because of the gold rushes. And, and he chose his name Freeman, you know, <laughs> which is uh, really appropriate. And he came out here and he worked for the church, you know, yeah. and an improvement society. Yeah. And uh, he became a writer and he started to talk about uh, the troubles in society and also uh, the good aspects of society that if you really put in the hard work, you know, you prospered. For Jenny Sinclair, John Freeman remains a fascinating historical character because of the huge disparities in his life. Someone who made a start, as he did, shooting at Queen Victoria with a pretty violent childhood, you would expect to pretty much sink to the bottom of the pile, as they used to put it in those days. Whereas once he got out to Melbourne, he made himself quite successful, quite respectable. And I was fascinated by the how he did that and what it said about him as a person, but also about all of us as people, I guess, how you become what you are. Um, and in that century, the emigration project, a lot of people were sent out to places like Melbourne, basically to get rid of them because they were inconvenient in England. And he was a fine example of that. He did something so dramatic in shooting at the Queen. There would have been two things there. One, he would have sat there for eight weeks going, I'm going to be hung and cut open. The next thing was 27 years of thinking time, I guess. At the end of that, he came out, um, it was a tribute to his character, that he came out not angry but really determined to make something of himself and to make a good man of himself. 
Thanks for listening to the In Black and White podcast. There are links to more information about this story in the description of this episode. I'm Felicity Harley and I host Healthy-ish, where we chat to experts, influencers and people in the know from around the globe to arm you with the knowledge to make healthier decisions for your mind, body and soul. I think if we're going to be focusing on health, like sleep is probably the biggest component of that. I I think sleep is the cornerstone. Like choose the harder option because I've never woken up and gone, I regret that run that I went at 4am. I've never done that. Search for Healthy-ish and Extra Healthy-ish wherever you get your podcasts.